I mean, this was supposed to be a very uplifting story for everyone involved. And, you know, it's turned into this circus where, you know, it makes you all cynical about everything that happens. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, August 23rd. Today, I'm joined by Eric Gardner to talk about a sad and potentially scandalous postscript to the hit movie, The Blind Side. Former NFL player Michael Orr, the subject of that movie, is now accusing Sean and Leanne Tui of misleading him into a conservatorship as a ploy to cash in on his story and his fame. It's a complicated legal tale with lots of unknowns, but Eric is here to break it all down. And later, Bill Cohan and Ben discuss the real reason Tyler Perry is not buying BET. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Eric Gardner to talk about the saga of Michael Orr, the former NFL offensive lineman who has basically accused the Tui family of Memphis that we all know from the hit 2009 movie, The Blind Side, the movie that earned Sandra Bullock a Best Actress Oscar. He's basically filed a petition saying that the Tui family took him in and basically duped him into signing a conservatorship so they and their kids, <laughs> their two their two kids, could basically make money off of him. Uh, they signed the conservatorship right after he turned 18 or is now claiming this also as part of a book tour. Eric, I, I love this podcast because, you know, you and I both like football. I get to talk about the SEC just a little bit. But most importantly, you get to talk about your favorite subject, the law. We have a lot of angles to this story, Eric, but one thing, you know, I just want you to set the table with for our listeners is he signed the conservatorship just after he turned 18. It's impossible to know, like, the motives right now here, but why didn't they just adopt him? Why did they wait till he turned 18 to sign a conservatorship? Yeah, it's a very confusing uh Question. I mean, the key difference between a conservatorship and an adoption, especially past the age of 18, is the power to make decisions on behalf of someone. Adoption is basically just welcoming someone to the family. And past 18, it's really just symbolic. Um, as for conservatorship, it's meant to aid those who don't have the ability for whatever reason to make prudent financial decisions for themselves. And usually a court doesn't just grant it by request. One has to show evidence that someone belongs in a conservatorship. Now, I don't know why the Tories chose conservatorship over adoption, 
And I think there's stuff that's going to come out that might explain that. So far, they're trying to suggest that because they needed it to look after him past the age 18, that uh, explanation doesn't really make sense to me because they could have just looked after him anyway without having mm-hmm. legal responsibility. Mm-hmm. As for the you know explanation that you know they were trying to dupe him to take his money, especially from the movie, that doesn't explanation doesn't hold for me either because this was set up in 2004 the book didn't come out until 2005 the movie didn't come out to 2009 he wasn't drafted until that year so the timing doesn't really work out either so the blind side made 300 million dollars the twoies have said in a statement uh, you know after all this went down that they each got 225,000 dollars plus 2% of the film's quote defined net proceeds Sean Tui's pal, lifelong pal, Michael Lewis, who wrote the book, The Blind Side, back in 2006, is basically taking the side of the Tuies here, saying they only received a small advance from the production company and a tiny percentage of the profits. Maybe this is a Matt Bellany question, but like if a movie makes $300 million, you know, I know that most of that goes to the studio. Uh, is that really all they got from the movie? Yeah, I think $300 million is enough and Matt will tell you this too, that they should have seen some sort of participation that if they did an accounting, there probably would turn up to be something that was going on. Some some fees that were taken by the studio for distributing the picture that kind of cut into the profits. Um, but it seems pretty extraordinary that a $300 million movie that won Academy Awards uh, was not enriching to everyone involved. That said, it is pretty extraordinary that the, that the real life people, the subjects of the movie, got any profit points. I mean, that is something that usually doesn't happen. Usually, if there's some sort of life rights story, hmm. uh, they get a flat fee in advance, as, as as you said, and that's it. To get any sort of percentage, to even hmm. 2 or 3% in cent is, is rather remarkable. But here's also something, that, that's something um, that people aren't really focused on. Even if everyone foresaw in 2004 this was going to be an Oscar-winning movie that made hundreds of millions of dollars, the mm-hmm. Tuies didn't need a conservatorship to make deals that they did. And they are just as part of this story as Michael Orr. This wasn't just a movie about him. This was a movie about their relationship. And they were very entitled to, you know, make a deal uh, that, you know, included them into, uh, you know, participating in, in the success of the movie as well. Mm-hmm. So one other angle here that's interesting is, according to NCAA rules, the Tuies would have been, you know, seen as Ole Miss boosters because they were really deeply connected to the University of Mississippi, a stone's throw from Memphis where they lived. And basically it would have been like a violation of NCAA rules if they were trying to like steer Michael to commit Ole Miss. <laughs> Basically, mm-hmm. once once the conservatorship was approved uh, in December 2004, I mean, right after that, he committed to Ole Miss. And I'm not alleging some sort of like recruiting conspiracy here, although some people have <laughs> on the internet, but is there a world where the conservatorship could have been related to, holy shit, this guy's going to be an insane offensive tackle. Like, we well, don't want him to go to Alabama or, or LSU or whatever. We want him to go to Ole Miss. Well, interestingly enough, the Michael Lewis book uh, spends a lot of focus on, on that question. There was actually an investigation, I, I think I remember recalling from reading the book, about you know whether or not he was steered towards Ole Miss 
um, because out of boosters and everything like that. It didn't make its way into the film. I think I, I, have, I have to admit that I haven't seen the film. What? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then I'll tell you. It's uh, on every. It's on every airplane. Next I time know, you're in a flight, I know. Just dial it, always, it, up. <laughs> it always seemed to me so hokey. You know, this white family adopting this black kid. I knew that it was there was something a little off about it. I knew I wasn't going to like it. And so I kind of avoided it, even though I absolutely adore the Michael Lewis book that that it's based yeah, yeah. on. Um, but, you know, going back to that whole situation, it kind of raises an interesting point, because one of the things that's alleged here is that is that the two grabbed his name and likeness rights. And if you've been paying attention to the NCAA um, these past couple of years, it's all been mm -hmm. about like liberation, giving, you know, athletes the right to profit from their name and likeness. But back in the day, back in the you know 2000s, uh, it, it's absolutely true that no athletes were allowed to do that and stay playing amateur sports. So perhaps maybe that's a reason for, for the conservatorship to kind of evade the NCAA rules uh, on profiting from your name. So. One thing that's come out interestingly in recent days is, and this is really sad. I mean, at least if you think about this family in terms of the movie and the book, but they came out and said, this is just another example of Michael trying to like shake us down. Like he basically has been threatening them over the years to like come out with this or spill dirt on them if they don't pay him. And it's, it's kind of weird because, you know, in his career, he played for the Ravens for like four seasons, I think, then the Titans and the Panthers. I mean, like pretty long, you know, 10 year NFL career, really good for an offensive lineman. We don't know what his net worth is, but he was given 20 some million dollars worth of guaranteed money here. And, and all of this leads to the question, in the course of negotiating contracts, he's had a book deal like at some point he either had an agent or a lawyer like they didn't know he didn't know until the year 2023 that he was under conservatorship yeah that's i think the the most saddest part of the situation really i mean if it's really true that he thought he was being adopted and nobody explained to him that he was stuck in a conservatorship then then yeah that's ridiculous that's uh that's an unfortunate and unhappy to say that say the least you know and mm -hmm. as far as you know the 15 million dollar or, or however much it was shakedown supposedly i don't read too much into that i think that's just kind of like a you know settlement talks and discussion i mean the, mm -hmm. the movie made 300 million dollars if if his lawyers tried to make a settlement discussion at the beginning of the before bringing the petition that would not be an unusual um mm -hmm. i think that's just kind of spin from from the two side to try to make michael or look as as bad as he can but you know this whole situation however you're going to read it is just so sad i mean this was supposed yeah. to be a very uplifting story for everyone involved and you know it's turned into this circus where you know it makes you all cynical about everything that happens yeah i mean and it's clear that this has been going on the friction between michael and and the twoies it's clear it's now been going on for way longer than we actually knew about as well um eric thank you so much for your insight as always my pleasure when we come back, two names you never thought you'd hear in the same sentence, Bill Cohan and Tyler Perry. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what The Playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. 
The Evening Standard raves, the gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey guys, it's Peter. When I'm not recording the pod, let's be honest, I'm probably snacking, I get hungry. But when I can steal some moments during the day, I do like to eat healthy. And eating better is easy with Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. And this is big, no cooking required. I recommend the smoothies. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. These are two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. Are. Pancakes, I love pancakes, more than waffles, more than French toast. A couple of my favorites so far, the red chili chicken tamale bowl and the smoky bacon and cheddar egg bites. I love egg bites. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals, factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. So sign up and save. Head to factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 and use code powers that be 50 to get 50% off. That's code powers that be 50 at factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 to get 50% off. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back and happy Wednesday. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan. Bill, how's your summer going? It's been great, Ben. Nice to see you. Well, as we know from your most recent story, the talk of Sconset is what's going on with Paramount Global and Sherry Redstone, who put BET Media up for sale earlier this year. She got a bunch of offers from the likes of Shaq, Kenya Barris, Diddy, 50 Cent, Tyler Perry, Byron Allen, a whole bunch of people. But then apparently... She pulled it off the market last week after all these bids came in way lower than what she wanted, lower than what Paramount wanted. It sounds like Tyler Perry may have been the closest with a $2 billion offer. Paramount wanted $3 billion. Bill, you used to be an M&A banker on Wall Street. The Paramount just decided BET actually creates more value inside the company than whatever they were going to get in exchange. Is the sale process really over? Or, you know, as Kendall Roy would say, is that just a play? Yeah, those are all uh, great questions, uh, Ben. Um, you know, no sale process is ever over, for starters. I mean, uh, everything on Wall Street is for sale, especially if it's a public company. Even a company that is controlled by two classes of stock, you know, Sherry Redstone controls 80% of the voting stock of Paramount Global. So, she wants to shut it down, uh, Ben. She can shut it down, but you know that doesn't necessarily mean that's the end of it. You know, way, way back in the dark ages of uh, 2000 and 2001, when I was working 
with Comcast on its acquisition of AT&T's cable business, which was called AT&T Broadband, which was a you know, division of AT&T or a subsidiary or whatever of AT&T and, and, and therefore didn't have its own publicly traded stock. I mean, and so obviously Comcast couldn't make a an offer for a division of a public company. It's, you know, pretty hard to do that because Michael Armstrong, or the CEO of uh, AT&T at the time, could just you know say no, and that would be the end of it. Uh, it's not like making an offer for a company uh, where you can you know put a tender offer in the paper and you know go directly to shareholders. So what we came up with was this idea of essentially making a public tender offer, a public hostile offer, but without. Uh, for a subsidiary, which had never happened before, just by saying, here's what we would pay for uh, AT&T broadband. And it was such a big number, $72 billion, that uh, one of the largest M&A deals uh, ever to that time, that, uh, you know, the AT&T board couldn't ignore it. And the AT&T shareholders put a lot of pressure on the AT&T board to, you know, negotiate with us. And that's what they did. And Comcast ended up buying it. So all of which is to say, you know, if Tyler Perry was paying a price, I mean, I suppose if Tyler Perry were paying $3 billion, uh, Sherry would have sold it. If it were, you know, if he was offered, you know, 2.8, say, then he could make that known publicly more explicitly and put pressure on Paramount Global board to sell him the company or pressure on Sherry to sell him the company. So I suppose there are ways if the price is right, but at a low price-ish, a low-ish price. Well, frankly, you know, I'm not saying $2 billion is a low price. I'm saying, you know, $2 billion on $325 million, million of EBITDA uh, might be, frankly, the right price. Uh, you know, Simon & Schuster was sold for six times EBITDA. Uh, even at $2 billion, that's uh, a little more than six times uh, or maybe that's around six times EBITDA. Uh, so that sounds like the right price for BET. Uh, I'd probably pay more for Simon & Schuster than I would for BET because BET is kind of like a falling knife. Uh, it's, it's a uh, linear TV network that is slowly uh, losing uh, subscribers and probably slowly losing uh, EBITDA. So it's not something you know to pay a big multiple for. So the problem here is that Tyler Perry has probably priced this thing correctly and fairly and accurately, and Sherry's just holding out uh, for for more money as she can do, and, uh, and you know not selling it. But you know the problem is that it you know if it in fact is a falling knife and it continues to fall, it's going to capture uh, less value the next time she tries to sell it. Uh, it'll be even worse. So this very kind of risky strategy on her part. But, you know, of course, nobody can tell Sherry anything, as we know. Well, that that's what seems so crazy to me about Paramount potentially pausing the sale is, like you said, BT is not getting more valuable. It's a declining media asset. Whatever it's worth, that number is going down. It's going to be less valuable next year than it is right now. So why not get it off the books now, get the money you can to pay down the debt at Paramount Global then hold on to this thing. Like, what is the possible explanation internally for doing that? You know, I, I'm sure it goes something like, you know, our multiple of EBITDA is or should be higher uh, than 
uh, six times. So why would we sell it at six times once the market comes back around to see how valuable we really are? I mean, I could hear Bob Backish saying this to Sherry. When, you know, once the market comes around to see how valuable our assets are, you know, CBS, Showtime, Paramount, the studio, the market will trade up. And so why sell something for six times EBITDA when it'll soon be capitalized at eight times or nine times EBITDA once the market comes back around. And so we'll be, you know, losing value if we sell it at this low multiple. It's not like, you know, the book business, which is truly non-core, BET, you know, we, we have other cable assets, obviously. So BET is not exactly non-core. Uh, you know, if we could sell it at the right price, i.e. $3 billion, then fine. If not, we'll, we'll keep it and, and the market will reward us. But, you know, that's the kind of failed logic that uh, probably got Sherry into the mess she's in uh, at the moment anyway, when she decided to remerge uh, Viacom and CBS. Yeah, and like you said, that the math is sort of hard to square. If they unloaded Simon and Schuster recently to, to KKR for six times EBITDA, why should BET be worth so much more when it's a when it's a, it's, it's it's a bundle of different things, but includes um, certainly linear assets that are going to be worth less and less every year. But Bill, if if you're Bob Iger watching this drama unfold at Paramount Global, does this make you worried? I mean, obviously ABC, which is one of the cable channels that. Bob sort of publicly put on the auction block, you know, it's it's probably worth more than BET, no doubt, but this can't be a good sign as far as the market conditions are concerned if, you know, they're putting this thing up for sale and, and demand looks weak. I mean, is that a red flag for, for Iger as he looks to shed assets too? I think everything's kind of a red flag for Bob Iger these days. So I see a lot of red flags. Sure. Look, look I mean, I think if, if it were CBS that he put that were up for sale and didn't get the price that they wanted, that might be a bad sign for Iger at Disney and trying to sell ABC. I think, who wants CBS or ABC now? I mean, the irony is they're, of course, uh, sort of like jewels, right? I mean, they're precious jewels, uh, once upon a time incredibly valuable, incredibly powerful, and still pretty important and powerful. I mean, you know, the broadcast... TV network is nothing to sneeze at, but, you know, is a strategic buyer going to step up and pay like a majestic price uh, for these uh, assets at this point? No. Is a financial buyer potentially uh, interested like KKR or Tyler Perry is a a financial buyer? I mean, sure. Financial buyers will always uh, at a price take interest in, you know, tackling the project, uh, you know, they'll value it like a, a bond or something, you know, that that is generating X amount of cash and X minus Y amount of cash, you know, year after year. So, I mean, they'll figure out the mathematics and how much money they can borrow and how to, you know, what the price is that'll make them 20% return. Sure, that will happen. And I'm sure even there are some, you know, as, as I've talked about many times, Ben, some private equity buyers who have assets in the linear TV space already who might very well be interested and might even be willing to pay more, like Apollo or whatever. But, you know, you're not going to find a strategic guy. I mean, unless uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, at Amazon decides that they want to marry Paramount Studio with 
MGM or buy CBS, you know, for fun or whatever. I, you know, it's possible that that could happen, but selling ABC alone is going to be tough. Finding a strategic quote partner for ESPN is going to be tough, which is why I like the idea of, you know, swapping a Comcast one third stake in Hulu for uh, a stake for Comcast in ESPN. I think that is a smart deal uh, that would show Wall Street that the lights are on uh, in Burbank, but I don't know whether, you know, no one's asking me to come in and chat about that with Bob Iger. So uh, I have no idea whether that's just Bill's folly or whether that might be something anybody would really consider. Well, Bill, uh, certainly Sherry should be listening to you. Bob, too. I I hope they're reading your output on Puck and taking notes because a lot of smart stuff in there. Thank you, as always, for stopping by. We appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Always a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.